No, it's just audio. I can pick my nose. and Absolutely. Okay. Yes. Ladies and gentlemen, and those who fall in the beautiful in-between, welcome back to the Hardcore Sobriety Podcast. My name is Logan Hardcore. If you know me in drag, if you know me in, you know, real life, it's Logan Slaughter. And today I am joined by a very special guest who probably doesn't realize, like, the impact on my sobriety that he had because I first um, was introduced to him very early in my sobriety And it was one of those moments where the story was just, it blew me away. And then he told everyone in the the meeting he had a book, so I bought the book. So we're going to talk all about that. But please, everyone, welcome to the podcast, Brian Belovich. Oh, hi, Logan. Thank you. Thank you for having me. No, we've talked about it for so long. And you know, it's always holidays or COVID or something coming up. Yes, it is I'm such fine. a pleasure to have you. Thank you. So I was, we were saying before we started this, I was introduced to you at one of the Fire Island Zoom meetings, and you were the speaker. And people that listen to this, like, I say that this podcast is a conversation about recovery. So I've had people from all walks of life that are in programs, that did it without it, that aren't sober, but deal with, you know, not drinking while they perform and like all just different things. But I read your book. Um, I literally, it's in my guest room. I keep it next to the bed. My father read it right after me and he is a 73 year old cowboy. So like <laughs> this book has made its way around our house. <laughs> and it was one of those books that I just could not set down. Oh my God, thank you. I mean, what a fucking story. (laughs) (laughs) Um, If you were able, if you had to give like a quick one minute pitch about your story and uh, trying to fit all of the ins and outs of it, how would you describe that to the listeners? Well, I I have managed to cook it down to one sentence over the years, but Basically, uh, what I like to tell folks is that I spent an incredible amount of time and energy trying to be something I wasn't until the day that I realized, you know, that there were, that, you know, uh, some of the choices I made weren't the best ones. And, uh, you know, I was lucky enough to, you know, get sober and, start to really look at myself in a way that I'd never done before. And, uh, you know, through outside help and the support of, you know, friends and, and, you know, people, even, you know, strangers, I was able to, uh, you know, make some other choices. Um, but I did spend, you know, uh, a good part of my life. Well, a lot of my early life anyway, for, for about, 15 years living as, you know, thinking that I wanted to be, you know, the opposite gender. I was living as a trans woman for almost 15 years in the 70s and 80s. I mean, the time, this, see, (laughs) this whole thing, the story, the name of the book is Transfigured, My Journey from Boy to Girl to Woman to Man. And I really think that that describes everything because it is a journey and i think for you to do this in that time period 
I mean, it's it was brave because, you know, I have a very close friend that transitioned and then retransitioned um years later when she when he got sober. Really? And, yeah. And it wow. just and it wasn't heard of no at all. And no. even then it was very taboo. And this was five, six, seven years ago, and people just didn't know how to handle that conversation, mm-hmm. let alone in the 70s and 80s. Yeah, it was 1986, I think, you know, well, 87, when I actually started the process to returning to my uh, gender uh, assigned at birth, which is the politically correct say that I was born male. Um, but uh, yeah, so it was uh, it it was there weren't very many people that were doing it, um, and I think that you know had it not been for the AIDS epidemic, you know that wiped out you know most of my generation. That you know my story, as my there might be other people um, that have had the same experience, you know, but a lot of my, the people, my contemporaries are, are, are gone. So, um, I know when I was growing up, it was, you know, often, you know, you were sort of pegged to fit into a certain category. And so it was very common. Like if you were a feminine gay boy, they pegged you right away as like a drag queen or Mm -hmm. a, trans woman or a transsexual or sex change the words that they used back then yeah but if you if you were a butch you know masculine acting you know gay guy you were you know you were pegged as like you know you know a butch butch top you know a butch guy so you know there was one or the other there was not all of this beautiful um variations that we have today on gender no and this is so new um you know this really this gender exploration really in the past year blew up but i remember i moved to new york in 2007 the end of 2006 and you know i was very feminine and you know even back then it, it was feminine men against the masculine men and it's only now that like you know with the explosion of drag race and all of that that being feminine and especially being a nightlife worker a drag queen has become socially acceptable Mm -hmm. or cool in our community because Mm -hmm. even the first few years i was working um like 2007 to 2010 11 like it wasn't great to be a drag queen we were still hidden in our own community and that provided a lot of confusion for me because i've moved from being like moved from somewhere where being gay was not okay to moving to new york where it was so gay but i was this performer that was pushed into a corner and my way was drugs and alcohol is how i dealt with it mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. i didn't know how to fit in yeah yeah and you know back then you know um I had a lot, of, even as coming out as gay a, th- a third time, like I've had three coming outs, you know, first coming out as a young gay person in Rhode Island, and then, you know, coming out as trans the second time, and then the third time coming out as gay in the 80s, in the middle of the AIDS crisis, you know, I had a lot of 
you know, internalized homophobia myself that I had to deal with. And on top of that, I had this sort of, you know, I was somewhat infamous in New York City because a lot of people knew me from the clubs and the nightlife. And I had made a name for myself in, you know, in in the business. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't the best kept secret. No. You know, so. Yeah, and, I, there were no, there are, when you're known, you mm-hmm, know, in the mm-hmm. New York City nightlife, mm-hmm. which you were, which I am, you know, like there aren't, there's no secrets because no. everyone mm-hmm. knows everything about you. And especially now with social media, it was like, when I chose to get sober, I was like, I have two choices. I either hide this completely or I need to be on the complete not opposite spectrum and like blast it from the mountaintops mm-hmm. because one way or another, it's coming out. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I I always try to give such thanks and gratitude to people who came up in the 70s and 80s in New York. And really, you know, it wasn't a glamorous place that they always make it look to be on TV, to be gay. You know, it's, there's, we wouldn't have anything we have currently without people who lived and fought and survived and died in this time period. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think, you know, obviously the AIDS um, crisis was not great on mental health, which wasn't a huge conversation. And a lot of people probably dealt with a lot, rather it was their sickness or friends and family just dying left and right through drugs and alcohol. And I think we just lived through another version of that with COVID. And I think we're lucky I say we're lucky, but we're lucky that this was everyone was involved. This wasn't one community this time. And people had to feel what this was like. And that this did open a conversation of mental health and really about addiction for many people because my addictions looked me straight in the face during that pandemic. And I can only imagine if I would have been alive and thriving the way that I am now back in the AIDS crisis, I really don't think I would have survived it either because of AIDS or because of my addictions. It just would have, one or the other would have gotten me taken out. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's interesting that you say that because it, you know, it it, it was very triggering for me uh, as someone who lived through the AIDS epidemic myself. And I, early on in my sobriety, I think I had like about six months sober when I tested positive for HIV. And so, you know, for the first 10 years of my sobriety, I didn't know whether I was going to live or die, you know, so the, the, the toll and, you know, the whole COVID thing was like, oh my God, we're going back to this time in history where, you know, you see someone one week and then the next week you hear like, oh my God, they're gone. And it, you know, there were a lot, there were lots of, uh, lots of people that, you know, I'm sure had this, had a similar experience. And, and luckily, you know, we, you know, because of that experience and getting through it, you know, I think that was sort of, the silver lining, you know, the sort of like being able to survive something like that and have that experience. You know, we get these 
life experiences, the longer we stay sober, we get through things that are really difficult. And so that the next time something happens, you know, we have that reference. They, you know, they call it a sober reference that we can, you know, like call up, call upon ourselves to like get through uh, some of the more difficult things that are happening in our lives. And even the good things, you know, even the good things can be triggering too. Yeah. I mean, I can't, I got sober midway through the pandemic and I got sober on Zoom. Wow. I mean, but it was, I was at that place of desperation of like my whole life was going to fall apart. And I knew I was one step away from all hell breaking loose. And I was like, you really have two, you have two choices here and they are black and white and they are as far away from each other as humanly possible. And I constantly say, which is never great and not taken the best um, in the rooms, I'm so grateful I got sober in a pandemic. And I'm grateful for the pandemic because it's forced me to slow down and focus on myself and take care of myself, mm-hmm. which I had not done mm-hmm. um, in many years. And, you know, I think being forced into my house and having nothing to do really provided me with why aren't you going to a meeting? You know, these meetings are online now, like, go. And I like, you know, there's the 90 and 90, which for people that aren't aware is you do 90 meetings in 90 days. Mm-hmm. I think I did 180 meetings in 90 days. Like I was just, I was just so in it. And I was afforded that opportunity because I was locked in my house. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's also made it very difficult for me now to integrate back into the real AA world. Yeah. I I prefer virtual meetings over in-person meetings. Um the convenience of it's great. I'm not a very welcoming and warm person in in-person meetings. And up here I'm in Westchester, so you know it's the like snobby Republican blue collar. So like, yeah, we all have this in common, but let me tell you the men are not racing over to me to give me their information. Right. Because right. of who I am. Right, right. Which, again, is like, you're supposed to be in this place where everything is so inclusive and we are here for each other, but I don't, I've been into the rooms up here for over a year and a half, and I think I've had four guys give me their number. Which, you know, for a person who doesn't have a strong recovery like I do, they would fail right out. They wouldn't Mm -hmm. be able to, they wouldn't have a network. Mm -hmm. So... I say that this pandemic came with so many blessings and curses, but, you know, I I look at the blessings like I got to hear you speak and I got to find your book because I wouldn't have, I don't know if I would have ran, come across your path without it. And I do think that even in these dark times, we're all put where we're supposed to be for certain reasons. And your story just had so many parallels, like being a New York nightlife, a drag queen. Um, you know, that's, that's a big one that not a lot of people understand what comes with that, especially being good in our entertainment field. And especially back then when nightlife was so different, like I know that drugs and alcohol are okay now, but back in the day, it just seemed like that was really everyone's escapism. Can you speak to how, you know, performing and being in a different character may have affected your alcoholism and addictions? Well, 
some people back then might might have considered me a drag queen, but I never really thought of myself as a drag queen. I was living as a trans woman um, and performing as a trans woman in nightclubs. You know, there are very you, you know which 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 we have which they have been doing for decades. You know, I came to New York in the early seventies and uh, was brought up in you know clubs like the Gilded Grape and you know the Gigi Barnum Room and you know different you know local clubs where where trans women did lip syncs. Uh-huh. You know, they lip synced for their lives just the way that you know regular drag queens on Drag Race, you know, Oof. and in clubs are are lip lip syncing, you know, all the time. So, so there was this kind of blurred line, like you know, they people would just automatically assume that you were uh, a drag queen if you were. But I sang with my own voice. Yeah, li- I had a live, you know, a band and a live. Um, live, you know, act that I did, but, um, did you you, like, I relied on drinking and drugs when I performed, I could not perform without it. Was that the case for you or were you able to? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Always. Yeah. I either had a drink or, you know, had to do a couple of lines of Coke. Mm -hmm. You know, I was Coke, Coke was a big, you know, yeah part of my uh story it was you know they told us it wasn't addictive (laughs) you know back then (laughs) it it was a recreational drug in the 70s you know it was like for fun and uh (sighs) a lot of us you know took advantage of that and uh it you know i it's very different performing sober and you know not having it's terrifying drugs yeah yeah, drugs it's or alcohol. Terrifying because mm-hmm. I got sober doing Zoom show or like living room shows. I was performing in my fucking living room. Yeah, I saw some of them. What a night! What a nightmare though yeah, to go yeah. from like being drunk and high at Stonewall. I'm performing at the world's most famous gay bar mm-hmm. for ten years, and then I'm thrown into my living room, and now I'm getting drunk and high in my living room. It was such a mind fuck for me because I always said, this will never be me. I'm never going to be the person that does drugs at home. I never drank at home. And now I was forced to because that was the only option to perform. So when I went back out a year ago this Tuesday um, to do shows in person, it's taken me a better part of eight months to like refine my footing doing this sober because... I built a character that relied on drugs and alcohol. I was known as the party girl. Anyone on Fire Island or New York knew mm-hmm. I Me was the too. girl. Yeah, I was mm-hmm. where it was at. You mm-hmm. wanted drugs and alcohol? Fine, Logan Hardcore. She will have it. And to kind of still be able to use my humor towards that, but not rely on it, it has been a doozy. But, yeah. you know, you were... Your name was Tish, correct? Yes. Back in the day. I love it. I love it. And it was like giving us just... I love that era of female impersonation, drag, trans women. It is. It was such a... For me, why I fell in love with drag. Because it was just like... You didn't rely... I was very heavy on tricks for a long time. It was kicking and splitting and... But like... Back in the day, like you, you either sang beautifully, 
or you were able to captivate an audience like Sweetie. I'll never forget seeing Sweetie perform mm. because she just, I believe she was singing these songs and she wasn't. But it was just such a captivating talent that I think if we took many of these girls off of Drag Race and threw them back a couple decades, they wouldn't survive. <laughs> because <laughs> you can be pretty on Instagram, but <laughs> you had to be able to control a crowd and be captivating, I feel like. Well, it's a whole different experience now. You know, it's like it's like what's happened be- as a result of that phenomenon, you know, has really redefined like people's idea of like what's a good drag queen, you know, and you and I know that, you know, there's a lot to be said for, you know, coming up in the ranks and, you know, doing your, your gigs out in, you know, Williamsburg or in the village or like, you know, schlepping, you know, jumping on the train at, jumping on the train and drag and and drag and schlepping to, you know, in a, you know, car services here and there and little toilet, you know, toilet changing in toilet. Dressing rooms the size of a broom closet. There is not one good dressing room in New York city. I stand by that statement. No, no. (laughs) And I, I probably know all the ones that you're talking about, but uh, yes. And none of them are good. You know, so like, you know, there's no, I, I guess, the compare the, the, you really can't it's like apples and oranges you know and but you know my friend bunny you know miss lady bunny she has she's a fucking nutcase she is a riot when it when comes my to, phone rings and i see that name pop up i'm you, like here you, you we go yes, <laughs> here we go. <laughs> she's got a whole theory on this whole like you know drag uh you know stuff which is really Really I'm working. So we're, we've we've missed each other a couple of times trying to get her on here, but I'm because yeah. you know I've known Bunny back from fucking when she would twirl into lips on a Sunday at noon, drunk and high, screaming about AIDS, and <laughs> you know I have friends that are like she tried to do a line of coke off my dick, and I'm like, well, she's sober now except for pot, so you know <laughs> the bunny's a bunny. The stories that come out of her are. Yeah, she's she's brilliant. She's a brilliant, brilliant. And she is brilliant. Brilliant mind. Yes. And Mm. I don't think a lot of people understand, like, under all of that, if you really pay attention to how she uses social media and what she's saying, she is well informed on everything. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Which is shocking to me because you really wouldn't think it. I did her podcast with, with Monet Exchange. Oh God, I love and, her. And and I never I, my face hurt at at the end of it. I was like laughing so hard and we had such a great time uh doing that. Knowing Monet, when she told me she was doing the podcast with Bunny, I was like, What? Because <laughs> Bunny is so rotted and you don't like to let people get away with shit. And Bunny's not gonna care what the fuck she says. <laughs> so I absolutely She's a, you know, like I just feel like such incredible characters came out of a couple of decades ago. Oh, that, yeah. You yeah. know, the stories, I mean, the stories in your book. My, I keep going back to my father enjoying this because my father's always been very supportive of me. You know, we come from a very redneck, white trash town mm. in Arizona. Mm. He supported me being gay. They always supported me doing drag. 
But like when I went upstairs at our old house and my book was missing because I had just <laughs> finished it. And then I was like, dad. And he was like, I just took this book downstairs. I love it. I was like, oh my God. And he, I mean, you know, it's just goes to show that like our stories can touch all types of people in all walks of life. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that's the, re- the reason, I mean, the, the reason I wrote it was to sort of leave that record behind, you know, leave that, exp- you know, in a way it's like carrying the message, yes. um, you know, without sort of, you know, saying, oh, I'm a member of, you know, such and such a group. Absolutely. You know, I mean, I'm not I'm not a huge fan of anonymity myself, but I think that, you know, wherever people can get the message of hope and recovery, you know, God bless them. Let them get it, you know, yeah. however it, because you never know. You never know. Um, you know, I've, I've gotten so many letters and the comments and uh, messages from people. I mean, I was at a books book event in North Carolina with my friend here uh, from New York. And this, I did a, I read a little bit from the book and talked a little bit. It was a workshop on sexuality and writing memoir. And uh, these parents came up to me after the presentation and they said, oh, this is our child uh i don't remember their name and it was this little trans kid and you should have seen their face like their face was like lit up like thank you so much it was you know just going on and on and the kid walked away and i gave i said can i give you a hug and you know we hugged and the kid walked away and the parents were so grateful and so thankful that i talked with with them and I turned to my friend and she looked at me and I looked at her we both burst into tears ah oh. like 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 sobbing like over this kid's reaction to like you know not feeling alone and not yeah. feeling not feeling separate and just knowing that there were other people out there that felt like him yeah like because you know growing up my experience of seeing what gay people were were the slapstick characters on Will and Grace. And, um, you know, now I was, you know, I like that you say you're not a fan of anonymity. Um, I obviously respect it when it comes to the program, but I live very out loud. And, like, I know that I'm as vocal as I am about my sobriety because I did not see it when I needed to. There were very few people I could turn to in the gay drag nightlife community that I could talk to about sobriety. And, you know, the amount of messages I've received from people, and even recently I got one, not about sobriety, but a girl I went to high school with asked me if she could give a friend of hers my number because her son... Mm-hmm. is very confused about gender and young and just want someone to talk to. And like, mm-hmm. it's just like a yes, obviously like give my number out, but you don't realize how being open is going to change not only your life, mm-hmm. but someone else's life. And like those small experiences to me are, there's no drug that can give me the high that I get like that that I get from knowing that I'm helping other people. 
Yeah, and that's the thing. That's the transformative, uh, you know, uh, the transformative power of sobriety is when you come to realize that it's not all about you and that the best thing that you can do is to give it give away to other people you know you can be there for other people you can support other people you can you know um, carry the message you know in so many different different ways um you know it's funny uh in a few weeks i'll be graduating um with my master's degree in mental health counseling. I'm about to, uh, I have a couple of more weeks left. And then I, uh, over the last six or seven months, I've been working in a school with kids and like gay kids, trans kids. And it's kind of like a real mind, mind fuck. Like, because I, it was like, I never imagined that this was something, number one, that I would be doing. And then returning to the scene of the crime, mm-hmm. like being, a, I'm sick. I just, I just turned 66. My God. And You're good for you. You don't look 66. Thank you, darling. You're so sweet. But then, you know, I, you know, I'm in this school and I'm like, wow, this, I was talking with a kid today and she, and she said, oh, this girl said that she, she likes somebody. And, and she said, and she's a teenager. And she said, she said, I was hoping it wasn't me because, um, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not really into girls. She said, but it's okay that she liked me, but I, I guess I would just have to tell her that I'm flattered, but I'm not really into girls. Like, this is like a kid. Like, Imagine. Like, Imagine like, if that's like, what life was like back and then. I, and I said to her, I said, gee, I said, that that is so great that you have that kind of attitude about your friend. I said, because if that was me back in high school, I said, the kids would be waiting for me after school to kick my ass. To kill me. Are you to, kidding to beat me? beat me up. They'd be I couldn't, following me home. Well, they used we to follow me home. We couldn't look at people. We could not even like, the worst, my nightmare of a place would be a locker room. It yeah. was just... Oh, horrible! You you were fucked. You if I yeah. did not keep my head completely down, and then they find a way to be like, "What faggot? You can't look at me." Like, what, do you want me to look at you or not? Which which one is it? You want a handy or no? Like, come on, we only yeah. got a few minutes. Yeah, I mean, I was on the train coming home from work today, and someone looked at me, and I looked at him, and he kind of looked at me, and he was like, "Why are you looking at me?" Like, oh. I was like, oh, we're going to go there now on the train at rush hour? Here we go. But I was just like, you know, in the past, I might have engaged, you know, if I'd had a few drinks or, you know, whatever. But nowadays, I just like let it go. So I do want to talk about the fact that you are about to graduate with your master's because I stated in the intro that your story has inspired me probably in ways you didn't know. I went back to school a semester ago. I'd never gone to college. I graduated high school. I moved here. I became a cross-dresser, and that was it. Um, But I got sober, and I saw that you had posted that you were going back to school and that you were like, you know, it's never too late to do 
things that like you want to do. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to go back to school. So you were absolutely a part of my decision to go back to school. And, you know, you just stated that you are, you just turned 66. And I think that's incredible for people to hear that you are like at this new chapter of life starting. I mean, I'm assuming this is starting a new career. Yeah. Act three. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) How fucking lucky. Some people don't get an act too. <laughs> well, I spent a lot of time in the 80s worrying about whether I was going to live or die. And, you know, I, I guess a lot of other people like myself that lived through that decade, you know, have similar experiences. Like, you know, why bother trying to do anything you know, you might be dead in a week, you know, was sort of like, I mean, when you go through, you know, when you go through life with so much trauma, mm-hmm. you're surrounded by so much trauma. It was really hard to think of, you know, it was, it was, it was, it was a time where you had to just really focus on like getting through the day, you know, talk about a day at a time, like just oh, focus on like getting through like another day without any more bad news. And so, you know, I did, I did feel like I spent an awful, awful lot of time. I lost a lot of time because of that period when there was no medication, there was no, you know, there was nothing, there was nothing. The government wasn't helping us. The Uh -uh. politicians, you know, no one, no one knew what was, what was going to happen, you know? Um, So, you know, I'm a firm believer that um, it ain't over until it's over. And so, well, it's you know, clearly not over. Yeah. And, and I, I love it. And I, um, you know, I also probably will keep doing what I'm doing until I can't do it anymore. And then we'll see what happens. But right now I'm enjoying, you know, this whole experience. And then the other thing is like, I really wanted to just learn something new. I wanted to be able to say, okay, I learned this. I committed to it and I am, am learning something on my own. And uh, it was, it's been a really re- rewarding experience. It's been a little weird going to school with kids like, you know, in their Do you 20s. go in person? Um, I was going in person for a while and then the pandemic hit and then right. we went to Zoom. But I do go in person. I have one class that's once a week right now um, and you know, the, the last class is the 24th oh my God. of May, and then we'll have our graduation ceremony in June. Congratulations. And I'll be, I'll be donning a gown again. See, you can take, you can take the dolls out of the gown, but you're not taking the gown. I, off might, the even, doll. I might even slip on a pair of high heels under I my mean, gown. If you do it, I'm going to show up. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought it. about I thought about it today. I said it might be fun to just wear a, co- a, a you know country pair of pumps. Right, hello, I mean there's <laughs> not a, there's not an occasion that I don't Madison think a Square Garden. It's going to oh, be at Madison Square Garden. Well, then you have to yeah. wear a country pair of pumps. <laughs> I just realized like my drag suitcase is like open and exploding behind me as I said that. Um, and I think it's great that you're doing stuff with mental health because. You know, I always feel, I always feel, for the past year and a half, I've felt everyone I hear that is long-term sobriety has such a strong outlook on mental health and has such a grasp on it because part of this program 
yeah, it's about saying your sorries and righting wrongs, but there really is a part of this that is mental health and understanding mm-hmm. things like your part in situations that you mm-hmm. never would have thought and how your actions affect, you know, it's just so much bigger than you. And of course, I feel like I was that typical person that got sober and was like, I'm going to start a podcast about sobriety. And then, you know, when I went back to school, I went in for accounting because that's what I do currently for a job and I have no degree. So I'm like, if something happens with this job, I'm fucked because I have nothing to fall back on. But now I'm like, now that I'm in it, I'm like, I've always enjoyed like therapy and stuff like that. Like, is this a road that I want to dive down? But then I'm like six fucking years. (laughs) Well, I went part time. I I went, I I mean, I was working full time when I started and I went part time, like just, took two courses that's uh, a week, that's what i'm doing know, it's taken so, two and then i took a year off to write my book and it ended up being more like a year and a half so you know i i really did i did it i did it the soft and easier way the but softer, you did it the softer easier way like i would see people that i know in the program just like try to do the whole like four credits 16 credits you know, just like cram it all in, and they mm-hmm. were being being crazy, insane. No, I took four and, credits this semester. Yeah, and next semester I'm taking that's three enough. classes. Like that's good. Yeah, I did okay. it. But I feel like I'm at this point where, like, now I have to shit or get off the pot and like figure out where I'm going with this. And like, do I just take the easy route, which would be accounting? Or do I really like, there's a little part of my gut that's like, you enjoy this and you are very passionate about sobriety and mental health. So your story in that way as well has been very inspiring to me because, you know, it's, I thought going back to school, going to college at 31 was, or 32 was, you know, the end of the world. And then I'm like, there are people that are just like, act like you said it's act three and i also would like to say i think you've had 20 acts according to this book (laughs) i think you getting out of atlantic city alive that one time was an act in its own (laughs) (laughs) yeah the atlantic city is that chapter one yeah yes i started that's why i was fucking hooked i started at the bottom yeah yeah Oh my but God. There, there was a lot, you know, my husband always says you have to write another book called Deleted Scenes. Yes. Please. Because there's so much more that I didn't even get. I mean, that was edited out and I didn't even get to put in the book. You should. Um, you, but you, uh, it's so fucking good. Like, this is a book that I will easily read again. I'm finishing oh, one. Thank you. Oh, That's I so mean, because I feel like if I went back through it now, a little bit more like stable in my sobriety. Things I, you know, things hit differently, but it was just, you know, we know a lot of people in our, in this industry that have had many tales and, but I mean, my God, (laughs) (laughs) I, I just two words, Atlantic city and people, if you want to know what that means, you have to buy the book because I'm not telling you (laughs) it is all I'll say is Atlantic city is not anywhere to go. For girls like us. <laughs> yeah. I, I am doing a reading on the 20th of May in Doylestown at the, the Pride Festival in Doyles, Doyles, Doylestown, oh. Pennsylvania. 
Nice. Well, yeah, yeah. I'm doing it with a couple of other uh, people that wrote memoir memoirs. May twentieth, um, the Doylestown book bookstore bookshop. Oh, nice. Yeah, I mean the book, the book, the book. You know, there's been talk of film, and you know, there was some talk about a series. You know, I was but, definitely going to ask you if you had ever wanted this to go from book to because one thing very easily I could hear you just reading each chapter as like a podcast episode and breaking it down. Like I know people that have done that, and like it's just so good. <laughs> and like there were things that I was like, I want more. Well, my uh my contract with the publisher is up in september and i mm. the, the rights revert back to me so technically i couldn't do a podcast right now but i am thinking about doing it in the fall very nice yeah, no, yeah. i mean yeah. A, script, a show a movie i mean it is it's so good. And I feel like we're in a place right now with gay media and the stories that are being told that it's just the perfect time, you know? Yeah. There's, 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 you know, the thing about my story is that it can be very triggering for some people mm. because, you know, I've tried to avoid like the plague politicizing you know, if there have been i've been approached from the right you know right you know media and right-leaning people that have tried to sort of use my story as as a negative you know sort of uh take on being transgender and you know i i recently was interviewed for uh uh psychology today on, mm -hmm. on um, you know, on kids deciding to change their gender and mm. hormone blockers and all this stuff. And the woman clearly had some agenda about, you know, there are two trains of thought. There are those that think you should wait. There are some, you know, psychologists and therapists and medical professionals that think that, you know, the school of thought is that you should wait. And then there are others that are sort of like, you know, do the gender affirming care. And just if the kid tells you that's what they want to do, then you should go along with what the kid tells you. So I want to always stay out of that controversy. And I've never politicized my um, story. But it no, could, because it could very easily be politicized. But it 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 is you know the thing that you said earlier about how we take a deeper dive into our lives in sobriety. I just want to speak to that for a second. You know, when I got sober and went into therapy and started to really look at do an inventory. Oof. You know, really look at like why I did the things I did. What 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 was my part in all of that stuff that I did? And I had a lot of fun. I mean, don't get don't get don't you know don't get me wrong. I mean, I did a lot of really amazing things as as a trans woman in the seventies and eighties that I'm very very proud of actually. Um, but to be perfectly honest. And to stay in this seat, you know, 
you know, you have to pay, you have to, you have, you have to pay a heavy price to mm-hmm. stay sober. And yes. the price is that you have to be honest and authentic with yourself. And I was so unhappy and so depressed when I got sober and started to look at my life through that lens, you know, um, that I was just like, you know, the world, the universe, whatever it was happening at the time was just telling me, no girl, Mm. it's it's not for you right now. It's not your, (laughs) it's not your time. They don't get it. They're not getting you, no matter how much talent you have, no matter how beautiful you are, no matter, you know, what impact you think you're making on people, Mm. they were just not having. So in a way, my story is a really cautionary tale about how difficult it was to be trans at that time in history. That's really what the story was. Yes. You know, because it was really just one too many obstacles after another. And when you think of everything that I, I mean, I did achieve everything that I set out to do, but it still didn't, I, I never had the acceptance. I never had like the, the opportunities that the girls and people have today, you know, because of the, the, the advances, because of the, you know, the, 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 the way that the 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 idea of being trans has evolved mm. over the years to become, you know, in the same way that gay rights has yeah. evolved, you know, so that wasn't available to me, and it nearly killed me. Yeah, so I that, mean, that's you, the bottom line, you know. It, you really had to live a sheltered, closeted life where, as much like you said, as much talent, as much everything, you're not able to move forward. No, you're kind of stuck in a very in, in one of the New York City small dressing rooms. To put it frankly, you're yeah. you're unable, you're stuck. There's no movement. No, and that no, could no, kill someone. Yeah, it almost killed me. That's mm-hmm. why I turned to you know. That's why my my drug use and my you know my addiction spiraled out of control i mean it was like this like schizophrenic life that i was living i was living this like fabulous life but like even my friends the other i did another podcast i did the night fever mm-hmm. podcast with world of wonder and they all knew me then and they were still like T- you know the tish tish we never knew that you were having such no. Such an incredibly difficult life. We never knew. People because only see the good. They only saw what was like I was presenting as like, mm-hmm. oh, everything is great and I'm beautiful and I mm-hmm. have this. And, you know, they just they <laughs> So, yeah, it almost killed me. Yeah. Um, you know, and that I, can be taken to in so many ways, just mm-hmm. like, you know, we as people in recovery 95% of the time really presented and projected a life and an image we wanted people to see of us that just was so untrue. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people thought I was having the time of my life and, you know, I was drinking and doing drugs to r- really for many years to cope with my mother being very ill and her dying and, I would do this and then go on stage and be the time of everyone's life. But like, it was killing me to do it, Mm -hmm. but you know, it's, and there was nowhere to go. There was, 
the only way the only place I was going was the bottom of a bag. Yeah. And the bottom of a bottle. And then getting in a car and driving. So I mean, not great. Yeah. Yeah. I can't even tell you how many times I jumped. I mean, like I was I don't know, I was at a meeting the other day or a few weeks ago and I was someone was talking about like risk taking. Like I can't even tell you how many times like you don't think of those consequences when you're fucked up. No. You know, you don't think of it. But like when I really reflect on like how many times I got in cars oh with my God. men that didn't know Mm-mm. that I was trans. I mean, that's and, a- and I needed the money to pay my rent or get more drugs or whatever to buy hormones or whatever I needed the money for. Yeah. It's you know, I really I encourage everyone and i mean this very seriously go on amazon and get transfigured my journey from boy to girl to woman to man if you are one of my close three friends i will loan it out but we are signing a piece of paper (laughs) i would like it back because (laughs) i truly will be rereading it and it's just you're such you end your story doesn't even end which i think is so phenomenal like you're literally entering act three and i think that's just such a testament to this program. And, you know, I've become that person I never wanted to be where I'm very program centered and, oh my God, it's the program. But I know what has worked for me and I see it in other people and it's just fucking incredible. And if you don't mind me asking, how many years do you have? I, I, I celebrated 35 years in November. Oh my God, congratulations. Yeah, yeah. 35, 86. Oh my God. Yeah. Good for you. I'm probably sober longer than you're older. Uh, probably mm-hmm. 32. Yeah. I'll be yeah. 33 uh, in August. Oh, I didn't okay. want to say it. All I didn't, right. want, I didn't right. want to be that girl that was like, oh, oh longer than I've been oh, alive. Oh, you wasn't even alive. You, was, you, was uh, you wasn't even a vision in your daddy's dreams. No, I, t- <laughs> trust me. I was not a vision in his or my mother's dreams. Trust me. Wow. They were they were young, wild, and they were hippies. Like people can't tell me that this doesn't pass down because they were Woodstock and free love. Oh wow. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So what was your dad's take on this? What did he take away from the story? I mean, my father loves me and um supports me and my husband and everything, but I think him to read other stories and like that how other parents handling situations really does affect the child. And, you know, I think at the end of the day, like my father and my political beliefs do not always align, but like, I know my father's heart and it is so big and full and he always wanted the best for me. So I think reading stories where he knows that people were hurt because of their parents' inability to love them for their um, sexual orientation or anything. He just, he loves those types of stories. And, you know, I think he read it right when I was getting sober. So kind of probably having a book about that in in with everything else. Because, you know, I'm sure him and my mom thought I was going to be transgendered when I was doing drag. I'm sure... God only knows what they thought was going on. Like, they knew that I was hooking. They knew that I did drugs. They knew everything. So, like, I'm sure it was just another way to see that this does happen to people. Mm -hmm. And, 
you know, he, I would just, I, he was so excited about the book. And when I told him I was interviewing you for the podcast, he was like, yes. I was like, <laughs> oh God, oh God. It, you know, I, I don't oftentimes like bring people on that sometimes I'm not like plug all your shit, but I really think people sober, not sober, trans, not trans, gay, not gay could get something out of your story because just like the way you've lived your life, your family, the family story in this book is so fucking heart wrenching. Uh, it, it's just so good. And I am so honored to have been able to speak with you today and like, to be able to tell you, like, even just hearing you speak that one time had such a profound impact on my life. Now I feel wow. like the little kid at the book fair. <laughs> wow. Thank you so much, Logan. That's yes. Close. That's really, really lovely. Thank you. And if you have anything, I know you said Doylestown on May 20th. If you have anything you want to plug or where people can find you, um, and you know, I'll put it all in the description as well. I'm on Twitter and I'm on Instagram, uh, Transfigured Book, at Transfigured Book. And uh, where else am I? Facebook, Brian Belovich, yes. BrianBelovich.com. Um, what else? There's something else I'm forgetting. Do you have any appearances other than the Doylestown coming up? in the near future? No, no. I've been pretty focused on school right now and just trying to finish up my internship and get ready to graduate. Then I'm going to take a lovely vacation Oh, and uh, take some time off. Good for you. Fucking well-deserved. You know, start the next chapter of work. Um, How far away from the city is Doylestown? It's like it's near Frenchtown, New Jersey. It's like oh. maybe like like maybe ninety minutes. Oh, if me and my husband don't have anything to do that day, I'm literally writing it down right now. I'm absolutely coming. Yeah, I'll send you the information. Yeah. So um, no one's borrowing this book before May twentieth because I'm going to get it signed um, <laughs> and get a um, copy for my father. Yes. Uh, well, it's been such a pleasure. And I always ask at the end, if you have anything you could say to people, new, questioning recovery, new in recovery, you know, what would you, what would your advice or words of wisdom be to those people? No, no matter how you look at it, it's all a day at a time. It's mm-hmm. still after 35 years, plus years, it's one day at a time. I don't have to use you know, drugs or alcohol. And, you know, if I can just, you know, get through, I mean, I'm not struggling with that today, but people that are new or just coming, you know, into recovery, it's, if, you know, one of the things that really worked well for me was that idea that, you know, I'll just have to get through today, Mm -hmm. you know, because one day turns into a week, Mm -hmm. one week turns into a month, and then three months, and then you know it takes a little while to get to get on the beam. But once you're on the beam, it's that there's nowhere else I'd rather fucking. There's be, nowhere sure. else I would rather be, and uh, I'm incredibly grateful for everything in my life today. And it's as a res- it's it's all because of 
you know, what I've learned and lived through in, in recovery. Mm-hmm. I would not have any of this in my life today, you know? Um, yeah. Well, I'm grateful that you have it and I'm grateful you were able to survive everything and write the story. And I am looking forward to book two deleted scenes because <laughs> I need more. So September yeah. needs to roll around. You need to get the rights back in your hands. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was, I was going to subtitle it reclaiming my, my pronouns. Yes. Reclaiming my male identity, one pronoun at a time. Oh my God. <laughs> I love it. I appreciate you being here so much. Thank you. And thank everyone, you, Logan. And I want to come see your show when you oh, let, let me know when you're performing. It's Tuesday nights at Playhouse in the West Village at eight o'clock. We are done by 949 and I'm at the taco truck by 10. Oh, I'm going to be there because I, oh, I have it, class. I have class till. I have class. My class is over at eight. Oh yeah, and I'm like eight, 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 ten. I'm not one of those drag queens that says eight and goes on at nine. I got places to be, tacos to eat, and a bed to get in by eleven. <laughs> <laughs> and a train back to Westchester, right? Oh no, I drive. No, oh, you drive, no, ma'am. Oh. Now that I can do it sober, it's a whole new experience. Oh, that's, yeah, that's a whole other conversation. Oh, my God. That's for my book, too. Yeah. Drunk driving. Don't do it. (laughs) No, not a good idea. No. All right. Thank you. Bye. Take care.